me down to the paradise city where the paradise city is green and the girls are pretty. Oh, yeah, I've literally never heard that song before. Seriously? What? I taught me that song. I've, I've even heard that song. Like, not related to the movie. Maybe I have. It sounded familiar, but it sounded like five other songs I've heard before. <laughs> I mean, yes. That is fair. Yes. That is fair. This movie taught me that song and also, along with 10 Things I Hate About You, instilled a deep desire to dance on tables. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Which I've never done, tragically. There's still time. There, You have your whole life in front of you. And so many tables. Okay, I have a theory that Jacinta, Alex, and I know, besides the Alex saying that she knows this from the movie, Jacinta, Alex, and I all being native-born Hoosiers and it being a, a Guns N' Roses song, mm. and the one of the most famous Hoosiers besides Michael Jackson is Axl Rose. Just kidding, there are a lot of famous Hoosiers, but... <laughs> Uh, maybe I definitely why. thought you were going to say John Cougar Mellencamp. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah, he is more famous, sure. And Kenneth Edmonds, but aka Babyface. Also, his government name out here. Guns N' Roses. My friend TJ beat Axl Rose in a foot race one time because that's what we do in central India. I used to walk through John Mellencamp's uh, backyard. <laughs> oh, okay. We're probably like New Yorkers that listen to the podcast that are like, yeah, I live next to... I don't know, Jenny, what's her name? From the block? Jenny, what's her name? Yeah, which one? (laughs) There's a lot of Jennies in the world. Hi, y'all. Welcome to That Bleeping Podcast, a podcast wherein four academics who love television recap... (laughs) Son of a bitch. All right. (laughs) I'm going to just rub this out. (laughs) You were pushing through so well. There was lots of traffic. It was raining. I'm, I'm rushed and harried. All right. Hi, hi. y'all. <laughs> Welcome to That Bleeping Podcast. A podcast. <laughs> hi. Hi. Hey. Okay. Hey. Kenny on here? Kenny Babyface Edmonds? Not that, not that one. Did you say Kenny from the block? I thought of Jenny Garth because last night I was reading about everyone in this movie and Jenny Garth was with, what, Peter Facinelli. Yeah, for like ever. Hi, y'all. Welcome to That Bleeping Podcast, a podcast where four academics who love television recap, analyze, and love and hate on all things popular culture. Uh, Usually, we talk a lot about Degrassi, the next generation. Today, we are talking about, can't hardly wait. Before we start, a couple of things. I mean, I'm not going to spoiler alert this because it's from 1998, y'all, and you should have been watching this movie. But we will swear. So, um, you know, If you have a delicate constitution, maybe we're not the group for you. Uh, I'm Tiffany Salter. I'm a professor of Asian American and Pacific literature who loves and teaches classes on sci-fi, cartoons, and other genre type fiction. I'm Jacinta. I'm a PhD candidate. I study television, film, and pop culture. I watch a lot of television, film, and, and pop culture, as one does. And I'm quite the connoisseur of 80s and 90s content. So Can't Hardly Wait is, uh, it's a fave. I'm Sonic Gabbard. I uh, teach at Ohio State University in the Women's Studies Department. Um, I am the non-cultural studies, popular culture literature person. I'm a political economist, but I like pop culture. And I was 16 when Can't Hardly Wait came out. And this movie was very important to me and my friend group in terms of our interactions with everything um, for a summer. So very excited to talk about this movie. What year did we say that was? 98. 
<laughs> well, I, yeah, this is my graduation. My I graduated in 98. So this was, I was target audience for this. Tiffany, we would have, I really think we would have been friends in high school. Probably. <laughs> I don't think that about a lot of people. <laughs> Not because of them, but because of me. But anyway. Uh, Brendan? Oh, hey. I'm Brendan Shaw. I am a professor of African-American literature. I study Black film, TV, music. I think the lonely person who hasn't seen this movie before until last night. Because when I was a teen and a tween, I didn't really watch teen-focused stuff. So I'm watching it now. And today we have a very special guest joining us, precisely because of her love for this film, Alex Harlig. Alex, would you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm a PhD candidate at Ohio State, and I study popular dance, media, and the internets, and I'm only here just to establish my pop culture generalist bona fides. Just kidding. (laughs) Just just kidding. It's because I am a huge fangirl of the pod and these people, and yes, this movie. Yeah. Mike Dexter is a god. Okay, so we're going to recap really quickly before we launch full on into the deep end. Okay, so there's a high school graduation. There's a party, like all 90s teen movies. There's a party. And the party is just a, you know, giant excuse for a bunch of people who do not belong in scenes together to be in scenes together. Preston, our central character, found out that the high school, I don't know, the person that joined their high school on the first day of ninth grade and he had a magical moment with, at least he thought so, and then started dating the the big, you know, football dude of the school, is now newly single. And this is his chance before he goes off to his workshop with Kurt Vonnegut to declare his love and maybe, maybe find a way to to forge a future together with the beautiful Amanda. We have his friend Denise, who rekindles a friendship, we'll say, with a with a, a person that she has grown up with from very young, uh, and they lost touch in uh, junior high. And then it's pretty much just a bunch of other people interacting with each other. There, it's there's this epic quest for Preston to declare his love, and everyone else. Oh, and also um, there's a nerd William, a nerd character, you know, archetype character who is going to exact his revenge on the same um, big football jock uh, who has been torturing him through his basically his whole maybe definitely high school probably earlier career. Any other major plot lines that we should establish before we get started? There's like 11 billion characters. <laughs> As is with so many of these movies, both him, the football guy, and Amanda sort of have their realizations, kind of, maybe, about like the bittersweetness of graduation and the fact that the football guy thinks college is going to be amazing and that's why he broke up with his girlfriend and his bros all aren't breaking up with their girlfriends and he thinks college will be awesome and he maybe discovers it won't be. I feel like that was the other big theme was like all these people being like, it's all ending, it's all going away. And some people learn things and some people don't. Yeah, I mean, because like the thing about this movie, unlike some other high school movies, is that it's just one one day for the most part. Uh, there's a little bit over into the next day, but it's pretty much just one day. And that day is June 17th, 1998. Because Barry... Because Barry Manilow's birthday is on June yes, 17th. Which is important. 
Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So happy 20th anniversary, y'all. Yes. Yep. Mad. Well, they also ran articles this year, but yes. Kind of spurred us to have the idea to do this. I mean, I haven't seen this before, and I do think compared to other teen movies, I liked thinking of it as a party movie. uh, I thought it was felt more realistic than a lot of the teen party movies. But also it went from being, it was like realistic and also surreal. Like it becomes kind of absurdist, the levels that things get to in a kind of fun way. Like it never, it never got gritty, dark, but it also never felt like unreal to me. I don't know. Okay, let me ask you something as this being your first time. Can you... Like, were there lines in it that you could see quoting? Oh, man. Sure. That's such a good question. Because my sister and I, like, quoted this movie fucking nonstop for years. <laughs> and even watching it again, I mean, there were things that I already knew, like, before I rewatched Sorry, before I rewatched it. And then there were other things that, like, the second that a line started, I knew you know, how it finished and the intonation and the body language and everything just already there. And I'm like, is that because that was a time in my life when I was like obsessively quoting everything? Or is it like actually, you know, the movie itself, the like, it's so quotable? I was just gonna say, I don't think it's just you. Because I was telling Brendan yesterday that first of all, I've had the line, Denise Fleming is a tampon stuck in my head for like days. <laughs> but also, I like, yes. I, I, the, yes. the end scene at the train station or whatever, I have that like whole scene memorized, like the whole entire choreography of it. Including yeah. Ethan Embry's iconic hop over a chair, which is like yes. every yep. fucking movie yep. he's in, he does like oh, cute yeah. little bunny hop. It's very important. Whew. The one that always, well, first of all, I realized when I was doing the recap that I said Amanda, because yeah. I cannot <laughs> say Amanda. <laughs> because Mike says Amanda. And I just can't like I can't it's impossible for me to not do it that way. But the other thing is, is like the the scene that I always think about is the fucking Sarah Rue scene. Because Mm. first of all, Sarah Rue. And second of all, like that's me in high school. Like I'm somewhere in between like Denise Fleming and Sarah Rue's character. Like I just like totally over all of it you're all she just like when she (laughs) every single one of you maybe it's because she's just a little too busy ordering around her little conformist locker you are all sheep You're all sheep. Bah. Bah. Based on what Alex asked about, like, well, two things. One, the things I wrote down as things I remembered, like quotes, mm-hmm. was the sheep, you're all sheep. Clea Duval saying, I'm allergic. <laughs> yes. Um, which is amazing. Yes. Hashtag iconic. And then also when he tries the beer and spits it in the guy's face and says, <laughs> the beer's gone bad. Because literally in college, the first time I tried beer, I was like, this is off-brand LaCroix. Like, <laughs> what is wrong with everyone drinking this? <laughs> and, so amazing. And to be fair, it was like, I don't know, not even MGD, like Natty. It was Natty Light. 
Um, I had a, I had an eighth of a beer. And wow. I was so scared I was going to get drunk. Oh, man. And I told my parents this, and I came home, and they made fun of me. <laughs> and uh, so when I came home at Christmas, they were like, so, Brendan, do you want some wine with dinner or an eighth of a glass of wine? <laughs> oh, my God. You get trolled by your parents. Oh, my God, right? You didn't have your um, alcohol card on you to see how drunk you were <laughs> that you that you downloaded from the net? Yeah. I did. The other thing I wanted to say, though, to Alex's question and that what you guys all said was, I do wonder if movies you watch at a certain time in your life are more quotable, especially in an era of rewatching movies. Mm-hmm. And movies like this are made to be requoted, I feel like. Mm-hmm. One of the pieces about the 20th anniversary that I think a lot of us read, and maybe this is where we got the idea, was the piece by The Ringer on the making of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things they said in that is they had this goal that every character, however large or small, be like a full character, which I do do think means like almost every person that speaks is like memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that, yeah, both of those things, like the movie's definitely designed to be quotable, much like another Ethan Embry movie, Empire Records, which is another fave of mine, I think is designed to do the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And like 10 Things I Hate About You, which came out the next year and which my sister and I were also like absolutely obsessed with. And we watched both of them like a million times. They have so much in common. And also we just, I still to this day quote 10 Things I Hate About You. Since, you know, uh, Brendan has shared his his kinship with, uh, with what's that child's name? Uh, William. And Tiffany has, has shared her kinship with Denise and Sarah Rue's character. I've also, I want to know, I wrote down, like, one of the second things I wrote down was that basically Preston and I have, like, so many similarities from his title card, like, the Honor Society, and his quote, which has beware all, of all enterprises that require new clothes. Uh, <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, that's so I, I just oh like I mean I probably would not have gone through the great Barry Manilow lengths that Preston went through, but I I do feel <laughs> very very much in common with him. Okay, so I wrote down which yearbook page is most like yours. Oh my! Because god. I I think probably William is most like mine. I mean, I would venture a guess that all of us are William in the yearbook categorizing, well, but I mean, because we're... Well, so that's, I mean, but that's why I, I like like Preston, because he had multiple activities, which I did, but he's like not over the top like William. And William's is very over the top. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, like in my character list, Denise has little hearts all, all around it because like... Aww. I just loved her. I mean, I it always made me sad that she didn't seem to like herself very much. She was so, like, cool and witty. And, like, I just feel... I think that she's wearing the same embellished green cardigan as Kat in 10 Things I Hate About You wears at the end. And they just have so much in common to me. Like, the, the way that their dialogue is written and, like, their I don't care about the world, but, like, obviously I want people to like me. 
because I'm a person. Definitely. The Denise Preston dynamic was very much my friend group dynamic, in part because we were we were theater and music orchestra kids. So like, of course, we had like a grudge on our like a chip on our shoulder. But then also like, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. But like we I remember we used to go around and talk about how shallow everyone is. I realize that that is (laughs) in and of itself so fucking uh, hypocritical and stupid. But we would go around and be like, glass of water, drop in a bucket. Like we were so shitty because <laughs> we were, we thought we were so deep. Oh, uh, we definitely probably, well, yeah, would have hung out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we probably would have made out. That's probably what would have happened. Wow. Well, for, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Another Denise similarity making out with my friends, whatever. Can we also talk about how we're apparently working our way through the filmography of Breckenmeyer? Yes, thank you. Oh my god. Well, I mean, we can talk about this cast a little bit because this cast is bonkers. Let's do it. And like there were so many faces where I was like, I know I know that person. And the biggest sort of like aha moment I had was a girlfriend, you know, number two or whatever, Tamala Jones, Mm -hmm. who was Lainey on Castle, (laughs) who I was like, oh, fuck, that's Lainey from Castle. And I was like, yes, I love her. I, I did. I mean, like, obviously... I apparently haven't watched this since I watched Castle, but uh, I was very happy to see her. Half the cast of Six Feet Under is in this movie. No, for real. <laughs> yep. My bullet point is literally everyone you've ever seen on TV or film. In a very weird, specific span of time. Yes. Yeah, right. I was also like, right. so happy that Sabrina was here, aka Melissa Joan Hart. Right. Uh, yeah. Melissa Joan Hart's character is so important yeah. to the plot, oh, too. Yeah. No, I loved her. Donald Faison's there. Yeah. Um, And also um, Marisol, what is her fucking last name? Give me a second. Who plays Veronica's mom on um, Riverdale is like groupie number two. (laughs) Yeah. She's one of the ones that wants to make out with William after uh, after Paradise City. She's the one that cries. She gets locked out of the bathroom. And William is the kid from Hook, which blew my mind. (laughs) Yes, and now he yeah, is like yeah. a somewhat conservative law professor. Boo! Jerry O'Connell shows up in there. I know. Trip McNeely. I think what's most interesting about like the variety of people is that the like leads are not necessarily the leads of this movie are not necessarily like who made it as much. Ne- I mean, like it's it's so uneven, it. which is yeah. kind of like high school itself. And like there are people, there are obviously people who have been in stuff or were in a lot of stuff around the same time. But then there's also people whose like careers got better much later. Yeah, Jason Siegel being right. the one that comes to mind the most. Because he plays like stoner guy number seven. With the watermelon. The stoner kids that Amanda asks about Preston, that was one of like the things we would quote the most. Mm-hmm. My sister and I, and actually I called Regina this afternoon to tell her that we were doing this. And she had to call back. And she called back at the exact moment that I was watching that scene. And she heard it, and then she just recited the whole thing. <laughs> like, like unprompted. <laughs> He's got like hair and he wears shirts sometimes <laughs> oh my god yes. <laughs> he's kind of tall he has hair 
<laughs> Preston. I mean, he's Preston. Preston Myers. <laughs> also, uh, jock number two, Sean mm-hmm. Patrick Thomas of Save the Last Dan. And Othello. He was also in Cruel Intentions. Well, so speaking of which, though, I was really glad there's more than two black people in the movie because most of the team yeah. movies like you might get one or two and then they're usually dating and then that's it like dating each other there's also because i also noted the there's a girl who's billed in the credits as like girl who have sex with anyone or whatever or girl who wants to have sex the one whose boyfriend has just broken up with her <laughs> she's asian but it's not like about that Right. She just like happens to be Asian. Yeah, I mean, there's much more like, I would say, actual people of color who get to say words in this teen movie than a lot of the other teen movies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite moments is whipped cream guy <laughs> who goes up to Preston right after. <laughs> like, if you hear that Amanda is single... <laughs> He's like, I think I'm going to ask her out. It's time to get freaky. And he just like runs off with like a horrible ready whip whipped cream. And it's amazing. That guy is one of those people who was in like a bunch of stuff in the 90s. Just like all over the place. I'd forgotten Jennifer Love Hewitt as a thing in the world, really. Like I remembered her. But when she, because the movie is built around her, like, aura, mm-hmm. and then there's that opening montage, which is kind of amazing, where there's the voiceover of the day he meets her, but we don't get to see her face. And there's lightning? Yeah. <laughs> and all that smoke. Yeah, well, yes. it's like the mist, the mist of memory. Yeah, yeah. It's like the foggy days of yore. And then, yeah, the lightning is bonkers. And I forgot how tiny she is, but also... Her boobs. That was not where I was actually going with that. But we can get there. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, that's, I mean, part of it is she's tiny. She has improbable proportions, but also she's just sort of thinking about like careers, right? Because this is her, like, she's at, this happens right right around the time that she like becomes a thing, right? When this movie comes out, she's probably the most a thing of anybody in the cast. Right, right, right. Her presence, I forgot how much she's like a presence, even though she's not necessarily a great actress. I find her very reassuring. And like, she just kind of glides through the movie, which I guess maybe the movie kind of does on purpose. Because she's, I don't know, she's such a weird actress. I mean, so I I was thinking about it yesterday, actually, because... In the in the nineties, Jennifer Love Hewitt is I th- I feel like really one of few actors actresses who plays both the girl next door and the popular girl. But the mm-hmm. popular girl that she mm-hmm. plays is always also nice. Like she's not yeah. the mean popular girl. Mm-hmm. She's like the misunderstood popular girl. Yep. She's like the same sort of popular girl here in the movie House Arrest. But then if you watch Trojan War and Party of Five, she's like the best friend girl next door who the main main dude is ignoring for far too long. Well, and Ethan Embry is sort of a weird, I mean, he's perfect, but he's also not what who you'd expect in that character either. I feel like, I feel like his... That particular actor was so, uh, he epitomizes that sort of like, I don't want to say like mediocre, because I don't think he's mediocre, but there was this sort of like regular guy, guy thing. And I think of like Swingers being the movie that launched that into, you know, that was an indie film, but it became like sort of a cult thing to have a little bit unconventionally attractive guy who also is deep, you know, 
quote unquote deep and he's like the nice guy trope but then also every man can see himself in him except he is he is very i find him incredibly good looking but like his whole shtick yeah i think he's better looking than like he's not like a john cusack and i love john cusack he's also gotten better looking i would say as he's gotten older Mm -hmm. yes he's fine yes call me ethan embry <laughs> um, it's so interesting, Brendan, that you use the word aura because I think that's so evocative of how they film her. I mean, I think later the film gets more formally typical, but in the beginning, it's doing so much with the like the music cues, like we said, the, that flashback and the sort of hyper structure of that and like all of the motifs. I feel like this movie is like a study in motifs, the way that it like threads things through. And then just like my favorite thing in the beginning is that like A, B, B, C structure maybe would be a way to say it of like the Mike Dexter is a god mm-hmm. and then it. Mike Dexter is a role model and then the switch to the, to the next scene Mike, De- Mike Dexter is an asshole or the other one there might be having there might be people having sex tonight you I gotta have sex tonight <laughs> like the the way that it just like transitions and and introduces characters I just think is like exquisite and it comes back with the letter I, I, I had a feeling that Tiffany and I were both going to want to talk about the letter Yes, I do. But I actually have something directly related to what Alex was just saying, which is that that one cut between um, the nerds and uh, Kenny uh, is actually there's also a match cut too. Because I mean, they're talking about like, will there be sex there? And then Kenny's like, yo, I just got to have sex tonight. And then there's this sort of surveillance video of that you see that um, from Williams sort of basement lair that you understand that he's got a camera like positioned outside of his door that leads up from the basement and then there's this camera uh surveillance camera in the convenience store where the guys are all uh, shopping and so like like the film wants to be doing like a lot of stuff i like that the the film plays on the sort of like tropes of different types of people that you meet Mm -hmm. in high school but then like it complicates it because there's just so many people in the film and you realize that like with this huge amount of cast like like there's a lot of like bleed through and like like overlapping and intermixture. And I think that like we get this sort of simple version in the front of the, or at the beginning of the movie with the yearbook pages, but then it sets up motifs, but then it like also complicates, like it gets real complicated really quick. So it does, it does a lot of work in the beginning. I, I think that a really good point, Alex. It remind, I mean, it made me think a lot of like a sort of, the, the movie I kept thinking of was 16 Candles, where yeah. you have all these things intertwined but i think it's much more clever i love 16 candles it's problematic as fuck i mean obviously all those john hughes films are the great are the granddaddy of this generation of like teen comedies and it has some of the similar things where you have the different classes of high schoolers come together and also the like but Mm -hmm. here i think the cool girl like you were saying is the girl next door in a way that that girl in that movie and all the shitty stuff that they do to her Mm -hmm. is not like humanized nearly as much as jennifer love hewitt gets Mm -hmm. to be humanized and also there's no lauren ambrose (laughs) in 16 candles i mean one of the things i love in this movie is that i having never seen it but having seen a million teen movies assumed there was one way that this 
narrative was going to go vis-a-vis Lauren Ambrose and Ethan Embry being the best friends who had dated in the past. But the movie has no time for that. I assumed he wasn't going to get with Jennifer Love Hewitt and he was going to end up with Lauren Ambrose. Obviously that doesn't happen because the movie has... That's so funny. This thing about... I mean, it ends up being a movie about romance and fate in a weird way, which is weird for Mm -hmm. a house party movie. (laughs) Yes. That's so generically astute, but I've, like, that possibility is so far from my mind since I saw it so young and, you know, obviously knew what happened. But you're totally right. In a lot of movies, that's what would happen. I mean, for me, I think it's partially because in movies like this, at the beginning, and I've said this before on the pod, I didn't really watch teen movies when I was a teen. I watched romantic comedies like the late 90s Julia Roberts-esque. And in those, there's always like an idealistic romantic person. And then there's a person who doesn't believe in romance and they're going to end up together. Right. That's who Lauren Ambrose and Ethan Embry are, right? He's the romantic idealist and she's the like, cut the shit, let's be real. So I thought it was interesting. I mean, I always identify with the romantic person. Ethan Embry, like I was like, I'm also irrational about emotions like this person. Yeah. And Lauren Ambrose, the thing I love about her character, especially when it comes in contact with Kenny, is the fact that she is a romantic. Like she's like in the end, she wants, she re- she just wants to be loved and love somebody, even if he's really embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's got that BDE. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about just interesting about their race politics in the movie. Kenny's character is interesting because obviously he's doing this weird black stereotype stuff. And I was interested to see how that was going to go. And there's that scene where, of course, she calls him out for it in the bathroom and how performative Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And then he turns Mm -hmm. around and calls her out for the kind of thing that you were talking about, Sonnet. The sort of, like, cool girl pose of, like, I've disassociated from everything. And he's like, oh, really? How much of that is your performance? Which I thought was interesting that they don't let him off the hook, but they don't let... The film kind of doesn't really let anyone off the hook for performing. Except for all the homophobia. Oh, wow. Like, that is something that watching it again... Yeah. Like, this is a... Yeah. I was like, how... Okay. That is, like, the most true-to-form teen movie of the time sort of part of this to me is, like, all of the... Like, particularly male homophobia. Right. So Jacinta and I both do fan studies stuff and uh, fanfic, know about fanfic. One of the tags that I think is so interesting in fanfic is that they'll often say like period accurate X. Yep. So like if it's set in a certain time period, you know, it'll be homophobia or misogyny or whatever. And I, mm-hmm. so I wrote period mm-hmm. accurate homophobia. <laughs> Because it's just, it's just, yeah, so the way it's interwoven is so endemic to that time period. The exception is Our Lady of yep, Dharma and yep, Greg. Yep, yep, I was going to go there. <laughs> yeah. I was going to go there. Who, for some reason, I remembered her. I wrote down before I even rewatched it that she was like the angel of media literacy. <laughs> which is not... <laughs> Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> Which is not actually what Jenna Elfman is doing in there exactly, but although I do think there's a lot of like self-reflexivity in this in this film. But yeah, she's like she misunderstands the whole phone call to Barry Manilow and it's like if you if you want to be with Barry Manilow, go for it. And so it's interesting to have that like in this like alongside all of the other stuff. I had a lot of feelings about that. And she specifically says she doesn't think it's weird, which I mean, period specific allyship probably is 
good as it gets, I guess. I was just going to say that her crush on Scott Bayo has not aged well. <laughs> I would no. not. I don't know. I didn't watch teen stuff. And the thing about growing up being a teen watching romantic comedies is that's a world of urbane people who have like gay best friends. And that's its own sort of fantasy world. But in there, they always give you these Julia Roberts characters who can be vehicles for like queer identifications because Julia Roberts and Sandra Bullock both do these weird gender things. There's none of this because it's like a whole different world that has nothing to do with this world. This, I, I, I mean, I've watched other teen movies. I don't remember this level of homophobia. I think the hardest for me, because usually teen homophobia, I'm like, whatever. When, when, there's, when they yell fag in the party and it's like everyone laughs, the whole party, it happened so fast that I was like, is that what really just happened? And what was confusing to me was then to have the whole thing with Jenna Elfman as what he calls a stripper, she calls a dancer, who's just like an angel for those who want a reminder of where she is in the movie, because there's so many people in this movie. Like her affirmation of his potential crush on Barry Manilow, which is amazing. I was like, I'm confused because I think that's the voice of the movie trying to... And also because this kind of sensitive boy is obviously when I was 17, I would have read my way into the sensitive boy who is a writer, who listens to music that everyone else thinks is weird. And then the payoff... He's palling around with Kurt Monica. Yeah, and the payoff is he's going to end up with Jennifer LaPew. I think that part of that, though, is like, at least... If I'm reading into it now, I would think like uh, draw the sh- movie drawing a line between like an adult perspective and the high school high school perspective, which is what most of the movie is. Whereas she is from the adult outside who is like completely wrong in her assessment, but also is unbothered. Yeah, she's so red as the adult, like she's smoking the whole time. <laughs> Right, right. But then there's also there's that one there is the one scene though, and in this way I think that I I was really disturbed with Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elliott's direction directional choice with music when um what's his name? William and Mike Dexter hug and then the music is I'll make love to you by Boys to Men. And that's the moment where I was, that was where I was like, man, fuck you guys. Like Mm -hmm. that's, let them be like nice. And because that was like, that is all directorial, right? Like that's all their choices in that moment. And that, that for me was where I was really turned off in a way that I wasn't turned off when I was younger. Again, because it did seem very similar to high school and all the things we talked about before. But when they played that, when the surge of music, because we did talk about how, integral music is in in this film Mm -hmm. when that came up and it was that crescendo when they hug it was like fuck you like just let them just let them be friends like why do you have to you you know they're not gonna do that in this kind of movie it's that is the easiest easiest laugh they can get I know. It just fucking pissed me off. I was like, fuck you. Yeah, it's the punchline. That's so interesting because I, like, I mean, I completely agree with you, but my, like, gut reaction at that moment was like, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. <laughs> like, I was like, 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 they really, like, I mean, they're, you know how, like, bodies get so soft when people are inebriated? Yeah. And they're just, like, hanging on to each other? And I mean, like, ultimately mike dexter ends up sucking but he has like a mo like a i don't know like 10 hours of redemptive arc where he like tries to help william escape oh and, and he apologizes although 
apologize for something he did that, that morning. Um, he, he, like, tries to, you know, help him escape from the police, and then he does, like, take the fall or whatever. Like, 100% a douchebag. I hate that guy. But, like, that moment of them, like, falling into each other, I was like, oh, they're so soft and, like, like leaning and, like, people need each other. But you're totally right. It's not, it's not good. I, I, I think we're both right. Like, I think that it could have been a moment of, like, tenderness that would have resonated so much more had you picked any other song that wasn't about, like, fucking each other. Ugh, it just, why? You, you know, know why. Like, fuck you. <laughs> I know why. <laughs> I love this, and I, I want to just use this as a segue. Can we talk about the music in this movie? Because there is so much good, good stuff. That, I don't like that choice. And I and I also was like, ooh, I cringed when it happened. But, like, their, like, characterization that the songs are doing. But then there's just some good, good music in here. There's some real clunkers. But there's also some really good I had really the soundtrack. Stuff. Like, I had the CD. I think I went, I think I actually broke it from playing too many times and scratching it up. Like, I fucking... I mean, this is the soundtrack of my high school. I fucking loved it. Oh, my God. I was just going to say that Juliet song is also in Empire Records. Yes! And Ethan Embry dances to it! Yes! I love that Dire Straits song. There is both soul coughing on this soundtrack and also delight. And these two things make me very, very happy. Because these are... this is That is my high Would school. Would you say it makes you delighted? <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Oh, oh my god. <laughs> Seriously, group is in Tiffany. So heart. my my <laughs> You know, you see, this comes on the tail end of of a prolonged stay. Oh my god, you can't even help yourself. There's like I've been staying with my brother who is expecting like his his wife is expecting and so he decided to take this this time together to practice his dad jokes. Uh oh, and they've been real bad. So He's ready. He's so ready. <laughs> He's very ready. But yes, I was delighted. Delighted with three E's. Well, and then, and then the E on the end. It, there's also G-Love, which was like, oh, G-Love. Shout out Philly. But ch- good Lord. We were really in. Oh, and Sneaker Pimps. Yeah. And the Sneaker Pimps pimp song that she walks okay. into made me so happy. I have uh, some very specific memories tied to this that album, mm-hmm. which we don't need to go into here. No, I think we should. No, we're not going to. <laughs> I'll tell you off, Mike. <laughs> Yes. Oh, okay. Um, Wait, that's the song. That's the take take yeah, me down yeah. song that yeah, Jennifer uh-huh. Love Hewitt walks into. I was just gonna say, Brendan posted the video for that song, and I said it sounded like something that would have been played on Roswell. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this this is a quick quick side note. Jennifer Love Hewitt, when she was on Kids Incorporated with Fergie, she was my first girl crush. Not girl crush, but like my first crush on a girl when I was a kid and I was like I want to be not just be her I want to be in her wow so like she's very yeah no I I mean not really because kids don't do that that stuff but like I I was like hard crushing on her like so hard so she's yeah oh no no let's keep going on that because because this is connected to the music for me but again I was sort of when Sonnet asked me yesterday if I wanted to do the podcast. I like quickly took notes on what was already in my brain about the movie before rewatching it. And one thing was the music. Like I've no, so I didn't even know who it was by. But I've, I don't think I've ever heard that song in any other context. The one when when Jennifer Love Hewitt walks in. But instantaneously, when I was thinking about the image of her, 
that song started playing and like her coming in the front door of the party with that like gauzy aura um, around her like came up and then she's wearing we have to talk about oh, yeah, clothes. I have clothes notes. she's she's wearing the spaghetti strap this like aqua spaghetti strap shirt which i realized i had like a, almost that exact shirt and i have like a little skirt that matched she and she walks in and she's got that amazing fluffy hair like everything about her is so mm-hmm. voluminous like even though she's got that itty bitty waist she's got th- like that hair and then later i just remember idolizing how thick her braid was in that like really tiny scene where she's cleaning out her room the next morning she's got this like amazing braid which is really in right now too although most people are using like extensions to get it and then her fucking boobs though i mean they're just like so like perky and like but just like sonnet you said crushing on her she's one of many people that like in retrospect i realized that i was like oh but like i didn't know at the time like i just like i just thought like i wanted to be like that it was like a style Mm -hmm. thing or like a a way to be in the world but then now i'm like yeah mine was my french literature professor (laughs) like i was like oh wait no i just Right. Speaking, <laughs> speaking also of war speaking also of wardrobe can we talk about the guy wearing the mesh shirt over the tank top because i had yes, questions yes. which were mostly what is happening <laughs> that's the guy who's at the keg and also is in uh the one that had dumped mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. woman that kenny was gonna yes yeah mm-hmm. The it's like a blue mesh. It's I was yeah, just yes, yes. We'll yes. we'll post it. We'll post it on the gram for people because yeah. it's special. It is, it is special. The red jacket <laughs> that Ethan Embry wears at the end when he meets up with Lauren Ambrose at the diner. I was like, yes. this is amazing. So in terms of fashion, I don't understand what Ethan Embry is supposed to be in relationship to everyone else in this movie. Because that red jacket, I was like, where is this from? Where did you buy it? Where did you wear it? The thrift store. Everywhere. But he's, interestingly, like, that's notably, like, more stylish or more, like, dressy than what he actually does wear to the party, which is, like, the very, of that moment, long sleeve shirt with a short sleeve shirt over it. Iconic. Yeah. The mix of dress codes. You've got the like the hostess who's dressed up. And, and her, oh my god, I love, I love the way that her perfect french twist of the <laughs> opening you know when you first see her open the door just completely devolves over the neck the wig they put her in but so, <laughs> oh my god yes but so like em- embry's there in like khakis and two weird shirts <laughs> and then you've got the like the girlfriend trio who are like dressed up but they're like dressed up for the they're dressed up for the club mm-hmm. but jennifer love hewitt isn't yeah no they're going to the club yeah the jennifer love hewitt outfit i thought was interesting too because it's so like you said she's like set apart always like she drifts mm-hmm. through scenes and also she's the, her outfit was much less mannered than so many of the outfits even the other casual outfits so what outfit would you guys wear? I mean, I in would be literally right wearing now. the... I would literally be wearing the Ethan Embry outfit. That is how I dressed in high school. I wore... I, I went to Catholic school. Yeah. We wore uniforms. But, like, if you went to... Like, 
at a party. Just I don't know if I mean now or 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 then, but like, I, I kind of want like if you had to pick one of those outfits and wear it now, what would you wear? Oh, I would wear Jamie Presley's outfit right now. Like I would go outside. Oh my god, that's what he picked for you. I would go outside right now and do that. So for me, like probably Ethan Embry's whole thing, both the sort of ringer tee and open shirt thing. Although I never tucked in my ringer tee and he had a belt. Like what 1990s high school kid like had a fucking belt on his khakis. That's the only thing that didn't work for me. But um, I also had like lots of like button up polyester shirts that I bought at the thrift store. And if I had ever found a Mm -hmm. red jacket like that, I would have worn it all the fucking time. I had so in the final scene when um, Jennifer Love Hewitt goes and meets up with Ethan Embry uh, she's wearing like a cherub shirt, and I actually bought that from Delia's because of this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> Amazing! Oh, Delia. So I think I thought that I was more like her, but I I was probably I was mixed probably between all of the not popular girls outfits. I would be be dressed like the band guy who's wearing the shirt he's not supposed to wear. (laughs) Because that's most of what I wear is just regular t-shirts and whatnot. Excellent t-shirts. Yeah, if if we get to include the band, then I guess I would probably be the the white artist formerly known as Prince. (laughs) (laughs) To to which he responded, listen here, Hootie. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, and also, but he, he, he introduces them with like this put on British accent that is, because there was this sort of like invasion of Brit pop at the time. It was like Oasis mm-hmm. and Blur and Pulp were all like everywhere at this point in the late 90s. And I was just like, oh, he's he's trying to do he's trying to do the like Brit pop thing. It was adorable. Also, though, like I, I just love that we never like hear anything from the band. they don't actually play any music well they broke up and then reunited i'm aware (laughs) i mean the band for me along with the hostess like i think earlier i said like this becomes like surreal Mm. and they're part of the reason it's surreal because on the hand they're so sweet but like it's like been four hours (laughs) the most surreal thing though is all the stuff that that poor hostess goes yeah. through like the things in the fridge in which she's crawling around looking for dog shit and she doesn't know if it's human shit but she just starts oh it's so good i love her okay kind of along the same lines i think that what contributes to that surreal feeling is like all of the things in the mise-en-scene because there's like a lot of things in the music yes. scene. So, like, the first thing i noticed rewatching this time was that one of the people at the graduation on their cap has like this silver plant thing on top of their graduation cap. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? And then, so there's that. And then there's the guy that steals things everywhere. Yes, yes he's the, the best. Like, he's just forever he stealing. He steals lighter fluid, a cop car. He steals a gumball machine. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't the guy in the show in the movie angus side note i feel like the actor was on angus he anyway. might have been i haven't watched angus in a long time me either anyway sorry go back to uh, 
other surrealist things, the cop's name that lets uh, William out at the end, his name is Bobbit. Oh. <laughs> which, like at this point, at this point, would have had a very specific connotation. You know, the Lorena Bobbit stuff, and then um, I mean, of course, like the the spaceship at the very end. Oh yeah. Um, so I mean, it's like they're setting us up, kind of like all throughout. It's it's like Easter eggs for rewatching, basically. Oh, totally. I was just thinking, like, one of the interesting about, so we, we said it's a one night movie, although, of course, we get the day after. And we know that there's a lot of movies that are like that, that are set in, in a single night. But what's interesting is what it does to time. I mean, I just think, like, the oddity of time and the time scale for the different storylines is, like, kind of different somehow, even though it takes place in the same, like, real time. So the band breaking up and having a reunion, like planning their reunion, the ancient history feeling of the apology by Mike Dexter to um, William, even though it was that morning that he did whatever prank while he was at graduation, but then like Kenny and Denise, which I think we need to talk more about them. Yes. Yes. That happens. Like that seems to unfold like at a pretty, like, I don't know, realist for for a movie time frame so it's just interesting that you have these like way different amounts of things that can happen within the same like set of hours on that same line because i had never really thought about how long it was when angel's dancer um is talking to ethan embry she mentions that it's 2 a.m at that point so I was like, right? I don't know when this party uh, started, yeah. but it's late, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember they were the, the nerds were going to do the creepy, creepy chloroform oh, yes. thing at twelve thirty. <laughs> That's yes, right. To, but, <laughs> my, I wrote down one of the lines from that where he says, "My parents took me to a three D film festival. I saw no third dimension." <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wrote that down too. I love that part so much. And also, tonight is our Independence Night. <laughs> oh, I know. I was like, so I see what's happening here. I remember that movie too. Right? It's that uh, intertextuality. <laughs> My other favorite line is at the very beginning, where Mike is trying to convince everyone to break up with their <sighs> girlfriends and he's talking about like how instead like girls instead of women and he Please says women. the future is women and I'm like yes Mike Dexter <laughs> yes Mike Dexter the future <laughs> is women but not like yeah, you mean I it. know I wrote down prescient exclamation mark <laughs> but I would like to go back to Kenny and and Denise because okay so I before this movie came out, I had a huge crush on Seth Green. And uh, at the very end, like, I think that, you know, Seth, I find him very charming generally, like, especially at the end of the movie where he's not being such a dork. And um, he, his apology, the scene where he, it's his yes. apology to Denise when he, he's in the car and he gets out of the car is so very good. And like, there's some there's some really bad acting in the film, but there's also some good acting. Yeah. In the his film. face is so expressive. He he can't say anything. He doesn't, he, it's like, oh, what could I possibly say? And yet his face says like so much. Well, and the fact that he yeah, just apologized, exactly. which I thought, I mean, yes. I was thinking when we were talking earlier about the homophobia, the the gender politic of the film, like in terms of women and men, like the hetero gender politic of the film, 
in that moment when instead of trying to justify everything, he just apologizes. Yeah. Because he was kind of being an ass. And that sort of, to me, feels of a piece with that moment when uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, like, starts telling off every single man who tries to have sex with her. Yes. I thought it was interesting that the film wants us to like the sort of like dopey romantic guy, but also she still tells him off too. And obviously she realizes she shouldn't have quote unquote, but she still doesn't. She's still like, just because I'm single doesn't mean you get me now. And she was right. And I kind of love that. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because I wrote a bunch of shit about how important that was. Well, she's also, she's even getting hit on by her cousin. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out Eric Palladino. Yeah, no, all the all the stuff with her, I think it, Alex's thing about girl next door, but also the hot girl is really, they play with that a lot in interesting ways, especially in that scene when the, the trio of women are like, you're so much hotter than Gwyneth. He's no Brad Pitt. And then they keep going on and on about that. And as soon as she walks away, they're like, she's so not as hot as Gwyneth. I don't know. There was just something interesting about the female pleasure thing for her and Lauren Ambrose what they want Mm -hmm. okay so which brings me to what i never really like noticed about kenny until this watch through which is that he's like actually ready to have like i mean i don't know about like emotionally but like he's got his (laughs) love kit which i think when i was watching it when i was in like fifth and sixth grade i thought was absurd (laughs) but now i'm like yo he's got condoms he's got lube he's he's read up on it he's thinking about it i was like this like people wish their first experiences were that prepared and i love that he's that prepared and it doesn't last more than like a minute oh my god oh i mean and his flavor of love scented candle yeah Yeah, and i always thought that i always thought that love and basketball was the first time i ever saw which is two that I just looked it up. It's two thousand. I always thought that was the first time I ever saw a condom like being used in a movie, but now I realize this must have been. I also think that it's good that the movie has, like, of course they don't believe that he's actually going to have sex with anybody, but I do think it's good that the movie actually has him talking about being a virgin with his friends and not in a weird way. Mm. This is just. This is like, you know, I, I'm going to meet women in the future and not know what to do. And I don't know what I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. And it's not like awkward. Well, any more awkward than this movie could be. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, the flip of that, that makes me think of what I, I liked that when Ethan Embry is at the diner and he like is leaving Lauren Ambrose and he, she's like, sorry, it didn't work out. And he was like, it would have been great. I would have liked to have at least made out with her. And I liked that because I was like, yeah, that even even the most romantic 17-year-old <laughs> would also be like, it'd be right. nice to make out with right. someone. <laughs> yeah. Like he wasn't a sex, like his being a romantic idealist didn't mean he didn't, I mean, he's a little sexist, right. but he still clearly like wants to have sex. Yeah, definitely. He isn't just like perfect. Yeah, but I like that he's willing to let it go. I yeah. mean, yeah. like yeah. after four oh, years, yeah. but once they actually interact, do we want to do some favorites? And what kind of favorites do we want to do? Yes, I was thinking favorite cameo was my suggestion. Oh man, there's just so many. My two one was Jenna Elfman because I love that character, and I would love a much longer movie with her in it. I also 
we didn't really talk about the love letter, but I feel like the love letter's role in this movie and how gross it ends up getting before it gets to her is sort of similar to Jenna Elfman's role in this movie to be like the most broke-ass guardian angel, but also the guardian (laughs) angel you need. Oh my gosh, I love that. So it's her, and I say that with love, like it's not, but like just, and then Melissa Joan Hart, like who's uncredited. She's uncredited for her role in this movie. I just love, I love her. And when the thing went into the water, I felt really bad. Like I felt, I wrote poor so-and-so several times and I wrote poor Sabrina. Um, That moment. And then the next, and then she finds love with the guy who understands her yearbook. And her outfit was amazing. So those are my two cameos. Also, though, a third one would be I'm Allergic with Clea Duval. Yo, Tina. Come on, dance. I'm allergic. Come on, dance. Yeah. Which is like the closest this movie gets to actual yes. queer characters is Clea Duvall. Yes. I'm allergic. Uh, Clea Duvall is is mine. And then also, shit, I just wrote it down. Wait, skip over me and come back. <laughs> oh, here it is. Okay, I got it. Clea Duvall, but then also Eric Balfour, who plays a stoner guy number, I don't know. But he has an interaction where he licks Aunt Lauren Ambrose's head. And for the fans out there of Six Feet Under, <laughs> those two actors play opposite of each other in Six Feet Under. Okay, here you go. He's a bad guy. Sorry, spoiler alert. He plays a dick. Okay, sorry. I know I I ruined everything. But the other reason why I mentioned Eric Balfour is my cousin, I think, in 1998 told me that he was James Taylor's son, and I believed it for like 15 years. Like the internet existed and I never thought to look it up. I believe that James Taylor, like he was the son of like, James Taylor and I I was like huh um so I have this weird spot <laughs> in my heart for him because I believe my cousin and didn't read the internet so yeah <laughs> Clea Duvall is one of mine because uh yeah I'm allergic obviously but also Clea Duvall is also in one of my other favorite late 90s teen movies The Faculty we should maybe watch at some point. So I just appreciate her general existence. And then also the stoner guys when they try to describe Preston, because that is very classic. And it's Alex's favorite quote. That's true. Okay. So, so again, Clea Duvall, Clea Duvall. Okay. So one is, one is a cameo and one I don't think is a cameo. I think it's just an early appearance. So the early appearance appearance is Leslie Grossman who goes on to do, so she's the friend of the girl who wants to have sex with the next person who asks her and she goes on to uh, be in a show called what i like about you with amanda Bynes and jenny garth i always liked her character in that um so i was uh happy to see that but then the other one that is actually (laughs) is cheyenne who okay so cheyenne from dance with me with vanessa williams and i was wondering if that was going to be alex's because he just he comes up right after uh amanda lays into preston and is like basically like sorry buddy that was really rough and also as i said before sarah rue so because (laughs) sheep (laughs) and that's it okay so the best cameo for me is the green caboodle oh my god caboodles that the that the nerds on the um 
on the roof have. I never noticed that before this watch through. They have like a proper toolbox and then they have this green sparkly caboodle, which is the wow. exact color that is still sitting in my sister's bedroom at this very moment. Wow. <laughs> well, to be clear, it's it's at it's at my mom's house, yeah. not not at her, not at my sister's <laughs> not at Regina's current residence. <laughs> Ooh, maybe this is when we put Alex on the spot and see if she can remember all of our endings. Just kidding. We won't make you do that. Oh, Tiffany does the editing. Um, Sonnet says the uh, socials. And Brendan. That's all I know. Jacinta uploads things online. Our, our episode is edited uh, by Tiffany Salter, hosted by Jacinta Yanders. Social media is covered by the, the lot of us. And we want to give a special thank you to our esteemed colleague and fellow Stan, Alex Harlick, for joining us. Thank you for taking your time and giving us all of the hilarity in this this recording. And we love you. It was my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We love you, Alex. We love you, Alex. (laughs) Yay. Uh, Bye. Bye.